0: Ringer Dish is the place for all things celebrity. From major celebrity moments like the Met Gala and the Oscars, to the weird habits of the stars you love, to refreshers on the biggest tabloid stories from the last 20 years, Ringer Dish has all the vital details. On Tuesdays, catch Jam Session with Juliet Littman and Amanda Dobbins for Royal Family Rumors, Celebrity Real Estate, and Industry Analysis. And on Fridays, listen to Tea Time with me, Kate, and Amelia for lightning-fast coverage on pressing celebrity news and gossip. Check out Ringer Dish on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? Right. To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got tons of other multi-care services
1: it's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car jiffy lube car more to find coupons and start an instant online estimate visit jiffy lube.com i need supports to have to clear the room stand up and walk
0: Now! Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, one of the many saints of Philadelphia, it's Andy Greenwald! That's
1: nice. I thought you were going to make a squid game joke about me and I was going to have to defend my (laughs) (laughs) outsized interest in other people's kidneys. But... (laughs) (laughs) That's, this was better. Thank you. <laughs>
0: um, Andy, today on The Watch podcast, we are going to be talking a little bit about um, The Many Saints of Newark, which is coming on HBO Max and into movie theaters this weekend. We're going to talk about the two ways you can, you can see that movie. But I wanted to have a larger conversation about mm. the legacy of The Sopranos. There was a really interesting article in The New York Times Magazine by Willie Staley about the sort of resonance the Sopranos seems to have with a younger generation of viewers. He talked to David Chase a bit. I would also highly recommend people check out Justin Sales' exhaustive, possibly definitive, definitely a passion project, his 30,000-word ranking of every ap- episode in The Sopranos. Justin is you know, perhaps one of... He is our in-house expert on The Sopranos. He's on Big Picture this week talking about Many Saints and talking about his project. I would like to love to chat with Justin in the future about how he went about making this list because I find, you know, we we do so many internal rankings, just like, you know, I, I like this one, this is the best, this is the best. How do you rank a television episode over another one? You know, there are some that are definitively, like, important, but when you get into the weeds of, like what's the 40th and the 41st at best Sopranos episode? Like, how do you decide? So I wanted to chat with Justin about that, maybe at a future date. I wanted to talk to you about the Sopranos and and what it means. And then we're going to spend a little bit of the rest of the pod talking about our obsession with Squid Game. Uh, I hope people have gotten a chance to catch up on some of it. Andy and I are trying to, you know, pace ourselves both because of the strobe-lit violence and also Mm -hmm. because we want to make it last. So we'll be talking about episodes two through four today.
1: Is it... it or is it in any way surprising that the th- aspects of Squid Game that I most connect with are the trying to have a good relationship with your daughter, but also needing a lot of sleep before any stressful competitive exercise <laughs> the next morning?
0: Um, it was it was very interesting pairing Squid Game with Survivor last night. I'll put it that oh, way. OK, you know, uh, the season of Survivor is uh, much more grueling than past seasons. I think that in the past seasons there had been I wouldn't quite say like a Top Chef-esque turn towards um, making a really cool, harmonious environment for people to perform their best, but I definitely felt like they had the food they needed, and this season, at least in the beginning, you know, uh they have been it's been pretty gnarly of like just trying to catch a hermit crab with your bare hand, you know like
1: <laughs> I what, identify what, what is- with. What value is that going to give you? You can't you can't eat a hermit crab.
0: I don't know. I mean, it's just like a lot of like hand fishing. But uh, it was kind of interesting to see psychologically to go from like a reality television show about survival to a, a narrative show about survival.
1: You're not ready to have the conversation about which crabs make good eating when hand harvested <laughs> on a beach.
0: <laughs> I can tell that you're not
1: ready for that conversation, Chris. That's fine. It's fine. No trafe on this podcast.
0: So, Andy, a lot of what has come out about The Sopranos or, you know, Mm -hmm. the the occasion of the release of the film, Many Saints of Newark, which is a Sopranos prequel, has obviously triggered a wave of Sopranos content, as has, according to Willie Staley, this um, surge in viewing and rewatching of The Sopranos, perhaps watching for the first time or rewatching from the beginning. I anecdotally know several people who have done so, you know, out of pandemic boredom, out of getting ready for the movie, out of just because it's been a while. You and I do not often chat about re-watching shows. And right. I think that there's a reason for that, which is that we don't really do it.
1: We re-watch movies like Train Spotting on the Rewatchables podcast.
0: Yeah. I rewatch movies all the time. I, I have I have movies that I watch once a year. I watch Jaws every so, summer. I watch, you know, Halloween every every Halloween. But like I don't typically unless I need to remember something
1: that happened. <laughs> just uh, you watch marriage story every valentine's day. I just love where this is going. Like
0: have you ever rewatched a show from start to finish?
1: Uh no. And I think that makes us an outlier, definitely with younger listeners that we might have because that is clearly a very popular thing to do for for varying reasons. And I think that when I say no, I don't, I should also say that when we were the age that when we were in our 20s, for example, I think that it was it was definitely not uncommon to turn on the TV and Seinfeld reruns were on and watch them, you know, or when we were younger, certainly like there were always, when you come home from school, there weren't really that many, there were some cartoons maybe, but there was also like different strokes and family ties and all these syndicated shows. So at that age, taking comfort in familiar sitcoms of a previous era, that is an evergreen thing. And I totally can connect to and relate to that. I think what's notable is that this is the first generation coming of age where where there are canonical television shows that loom large and still cast large shadows over the contemporary cultural landscape that are available to be rewatched and reconsidered. And so in that respect, I just think it's not that we don't do it in that way. We kind of were there at the beginning of this era and we Mm -hmm. saw them. And so I actually make the connection and we will talk specifically about why The Sopranos... Why this happens with The Sopranos. I think it's an interesting conversation. But I would make, I would more make the connection that this is akin to the time when I had free time in my late 20s and used Netflix, the red envelope service, to be like, mm-hmm. boy, I've definitely said the word Robert Altman out loud before, but I've never seen these movies in the 70s. Like I'm going to educate myself. more v-
0: things Altman esque yes. than I have actually seen Robert Altman Yeah,
1: movies. So yeah. I, I'm going to try and dutifully but pleasurably fill in, spackle in the holes of some of my cultural. Ignorance, right? And the benefit with a show like The Sopranos or The Wire or whatever is that it is available and easy and there's a ton of it. And so Mm -hmm. it's just a wonderful life raft to use to float on the ocean of uncertainty and time, particularly, particularly that we experienced as a result of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I don't necessarily use this as a badge of honor. You know, like I think that there are certain cases where it probably would have been Helpful to have rewatched Game of Thrones going into a Game of Thrones season, whether to pick yeah, up right. nuances in the writing. You know, I just did. Uh, often when I do a rewatchables podcast, I will kind of notice, oh, when I'm when I'll watch it with a very you know kind of close analytical eye to get ready for the pod. Nuances in the writing, before plot points that were foreshadowed. I, I you know gestures, cinematic gestures that I hadn't noticed before get repeated. So right. it's really useful for that. Um, television right around this time of Sopranos, like there's there's these two things. There's the prestige TV, like the auteur showrunner who's making a television show uh from their kind of creative perspective with the least amount of interference maybe possible, whether it's from the commercial pressures of writing into ad breaks or from a network telling them this is what it needs to be. It needs to go on for 10 seasons, we need to just have this in perpetuity so we can sell syndication rights. There's that element of it, and then there is the sort of rise of the director-driven TV show that I think you and I have often diverged on. Where, where maybe like I've been like a little bit more charmed by something or enthused by something like True Detective because of how it's made, and you're like I actually can't get over what it's about or how it's telling its story on a writing mm-hmm. level, right? You know, and so that, those are the kinds of shows, the the cinematic shows. Are the ones I think I'm more drawn to reviewing. So I, you know, whether I've I've rewatched episodes of zero zero zero. One of the reasons though why I don't really rewatch TV is I'm constantly looking for new TV, and we are in an era where there is just no shortage of it. Now you may not know that from listening to the pod often because Andy and I choose to try and focus on shows that we like slash love, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and not just belabor like oh this is bad this week, this was bad this week, this was bad this week, but. I spent a lot of my working week checking out new shows and I know that you do a lot more probably than you give credit for.
1: Oh, that's nice. Thank you. (laughs) I I think that, I agree with all that. I I just continue to come back to the point that I think that it's totally legitimate, especially in this age, golden age of, of just streaming possibilities to just sink into the comfort of beloved shows, whether they are, you know, Growing Pains or The West Wing or something. But I think that the era Of having shows to revisit that are still brilliant and innovative and have something to say about our current moment, not just the moments in which they were created. I think that's relatively new. Mm -hmm. You know, I think just this the idea that, I mean, most TV was made to be disposed of and not the people, even the people who made it. And this actually is a segue into our conversation about David Chase. People, he took pride. In the scripts he wrote for the Rockford Files, a show that he enjoyed that has stood the test of time and is still a really fun hang and watch when you can find it on streaming. But no one working on it thought they were making cinema or art or anything that would last or be seen, you know, once the reruns ended. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, I do want to draw that distinction because I think that, the, and, and I think it's also the, the, the main thrust of the, the Times story you're mentioning about the Sopranos is that the new audience seems to be taking more from it or taking something different from it in this digestion than people took when it was actually happening, which I think is really interesting and a sign of, you know, really worthwhile art. But the, the idea of TV being something that lasts, that's new. It's just yeah. a fundamentally new thing.
0: So uh, Willie Staley's piece looks at The Sopranos from a couple of different angles. It talks about um, reading The Sopranos as a precursor to our current cultural and economic and political moment it talks about um the sopranos and its relationship to its then contemporary viewers you know and david chase's sometimes adversarial Mm -hmm. relationship to what people came to the show for and whether or not they were truly seeing tony soprano for who he was the monster that he was and you know willie kind of talks about like you know now that people are coming to the show who haven't really like ever experienced you know they they weren't around for the first. They weren't watching television when this show was first on. That they're kind of watching it with not necessarily more innocent eyes, or like not cheering or cheering for Tony, but that they're almost like outside of the group of that that chase was. Antagonistic towards, I guess, is a, is a fair way of summing up. And he also goes on to talk about how just the mafia has completely dissolved over the last 10 years and, and whatever like remnants there were, mm-hmm. you know, of it have kind of like been swallowed up by the frankly like um, mafia esque tactics of Wall Street and deregulation and the disappearance of the American labor movement, et cetera, et cetera. It's a really interesting piece that's got a lot of really interesting ideas about the show. But let's talk a little bit about going back to a show. Mm-hmm. When you're not the intended other person on the other side of the screen, you know what I mean.
1: Well, you mean like you weren't the pe- people that it was made for because you didn't exist yet because you weren't born.
0: Yeah, or because you were you, you were watching, you know, Barney or whatever. Yeah, like you you <laughs> you were not like I'm, some of I'm, us have
1: had to watch Barney recently. So right, you know, but I mean, not, like, hashtag not all viewers. But I guess I, it's, I, I know, it's a I know question about
0: mean. like whether the ironic memification of Sopranos is somehow like less right. uh Corrupted than than people who were like Tony's just like I, my favorite character on TV.
1: I, I think. Well, I, th- I think two things. the The idea of the quote unquote bad fan, which is an idea that Emily Nussbaum at the New Yorker kind of uh, I don't know if she created, but she certainly um, popularized the the term or the trope. And it was in reference to. I think she was really using it specifically in reference to Breaking Bad. But I think it it, it really has its genesis in Sopranos. Oh, which that was, was it
0: because it was about the relationship of fans to Skylar White, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: But the idea in, 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 in reference to The Sopranos, it was really what you were speaking to, which is that David Chase, from the beginning, with a mastery that we really haven't seen very often in television, knew that he was making an emotional story about Ruin. Right, about the end of things, about the end of the American century and the American experiment and American manhood and, and, and yes, and the mob. He wasn't interested in glorifying anything. Um, He was also, but he was also interested in having fun and entertaining sometimes, even though his interviews wouldn't always let you believe that. And so, this idea that the more he showed season after season the depths of the depravity of Tony Soprano, what a monster he was, right, that people kept cheering for him Mm -hmm. they were rooting for him it's the nature of tv it is it's a it's a sympathy box it's a sympathy machine it makes or even sometimes an empathy machine and that's beautiful for storytelling but it can start to feel a little perverse especially in the era when you have leads of shows who i mean there's walter white there's dexter who was a serial killer but also the hero i mean that got a little murky right but i think that as you saw the seasons go on one of the brilliant things about the show was that david chase's own disgust with Tony became more and more apparent. Mm-hmm. And yet people kept rooting for him in a way that was really seemed to confound him. Um, I think that to just break the show down into these fans kind of got it and these didn't, it, it kind of erases the magic of the show, which was, it was both always, it was incredibly funny and it was emotionally ravaging. It was searingly intellectual and cerebral, but it also had, mob hits you know i mean it, and that gives you a jolt and i'm talking to someone who's done how many goodfellas podcasts have you done or how many just, will you just do you,
0: the one but it feels just like the one, boring, but it,
1: yeah you know what i mean like the, the, it is absolutely um a narcotic you know in terms of a viewing experience so i think he got all that i think what's really thrilling and interesting for me just as a fan of the show and a fan of what tv can be as a medium is this idea that i think true works of art last and We are seeing now 20 years on the show still is relevant. It's still alive and it still has something to say right now, particularly circling all the way back to what you said about just decline. And this is, you know, Willie Staley in this piece brings that out very, very cleanly. Right. That like they were there were things that David Chase was tapped into, whether he was drawing from his own experiences in Hollywood or his own just generally bleak outlook on life that. During the time the show is on, which predates 9 11 and then went right through this kind of post 9 11, like America is going to drop fiery, you know, flames of hawk bombs on you or whatever. Like, like that. I remember that angry eagle that you could see from the F train when it went above the ground around Smith and 9th street. Yeah. Like post 9 11, there was a mural of an eagle that was just like, fuck you world. Here come our bombs. <laughs> um, Sopranos went right through that era and had a very, very sober eye about what america actually was on the inside beneath the bluster and you know i i i can't stop thinking about the fact that the finale um aj who is in some ways more emblematic not just of this generation watching the show but of what the country was becoming even after the reign of terror of tony dreams of going to work for donald trump i mean it's all there right Mm -hmm. so i feel like it's a it is a testament to the artistry of the show that it continues to to find new audiences and and it, it once again hit that sweet spot where it absolutely is something incredibly smart and insightful and intellectual and political. But also, man, how many hours of it are there available on your HBO Max streaming box that maybe you signed up for during the pandemic? Like that's, it's entertaining. You know, it's, what, what's the thing? I'm hugging you, but I'm hitting you. I mean, that is what the Sopranos has always been doing. And it continues to do that for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people.
0: Do you think that there's been something lost in the intervening years? About how to make a show like that, or do you think it's simply that there's just market forces at work that weren't there before that force, uh, you know, whether it's like making more limited series so that you can work mm-hmm. with bigger name talent on a shorter term basis because they're not going to be available to sign up for ten years of of a job like Michael Imperioli and James Gandolfini and Edie Falco did, you know, or is it more of a change in the way that we expect stories to work? I mean, Sopranos became about an end game. Uh, I guess, in its last season, as did most of the shows that we love. Lost, Breaking yep. Bad, Mad Men. It was all like, how is this going to end? Are they going to stick the landing? What's going to happen? But to your point earlier about the experience of television and maybe how it differs from the experience of watching movies is part of what I love about television is the um, the very temporal experience of it being this thing that's with you for a season, you know that is yep. what sometimes you know used to be when we were growing up like uh, several seasons of the year like it would go from fall to spring and that was your tv time mm-hmm. but even now as we anticipate this new season of succession coming you know i'm already i think part of the reason why i'm so excited about it is because it is a it's going to be experienced as a two and a half month thing yeah. rather than we're going to talk about squid game and we're we're being careful You know, we we I'm trying not to read too much about Squid Game because I don't want to have it spoiled for me because I know different people are in different parts of the of the journey with that show. But yeah, I guess I'm trying to get at is like, do you think that there was something inherent in the way TV was made back then specifically The Sopranos that has been lost now?
1: I think there are a lot of ways to answer it. The big answer is yes, things are completely different. I mean, (laughs) this doesn't make sense. But when I was looking at Justin's list and seeing the air dates for these episodes, I gasped. I mean, I I know when the show aired in my mind, but seeing that some of these iconic episodes aired 20 years ago, actual in actual calendar years is shocking to me. Um, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, how TV storytelling has changed and the expectations for it. But I do want to begin with the most old guy response possible, which is um, one of the reasons they don't make them like that anymore is because they don't, teach people to make them like that anymore so that they can then make them in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I I I think it cannot be stressed enough that the reason the Sopranos was so radical is because its creator had spent three decades in a machine he hated and resented. And that's the TV making machine. And and I you know I do this with a lot of people, but I recommend listening to to David Chase on the Marin podcast recently, because he talks about it. He has oh I mean he has his own heavy trip but like he's always considered himself a sellout because he took a deal with universal to be a tv writer in the 70s instead of pursuing his dream to make movies and but even within the depths of his regret about that he talks about what he learned which was enormous not just um, story structure um, but Working with actors, you know, and and he learned what expectations were from studios and the types of stories that you could tell. And all of it just added fuel to the fire that never left him, which is I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it a different way. And it's a super cliched comparison. But, you know, Picasso could paint a still life first. sure, Yeah. Um, right. And I think that all you can't teach or replace the years of structure and also passion and resentment. You can't recreate that in a lab. Matt Weiner, who, you know, obviously stepped his game up enormously and learned from David Chase while working on The Sopranos. And again, looking at Justin's list, it's notable how many of the top 20 were co-written by Matt Weiner. It's also probably worth putting in a parenthetical here to say that many people have suggested that the in Matt Weiner's most iconic scene in Mad Men in the episode The Suitcase, which would be number one on my list of Mad Men episodes, if anyone ever asked me to do a listicle there's the famous that's what the money is for scene. Mm-hmm. And many people have said, oh, that's Matt's relationship with David Chase. Matt is actually Peggy, not Don Draper. That's right, his relationship I think with a, Chase The other read on Sopranos. that would
0: be that that was Matt Weiner talking to whatever writing staff there happened to be of Matt. Exactly.
1: Of Matt. But everyone always thinks of themselves as the the victim in a way, or the, the junior partner. But anyway, yeah. um, but before Sopranos, Matt Weiner worked on Becker, a middling Ted Danson sitcom. And so, I'm not saying that And certainly the people honking outside my office aren't (laughs) saying that we should return to the very locked off ivory tower exclusivity of what the TV writing business was for a long time, where people you leave Harvard and you get a job on a writing staff and then you punch your time card 20 years later and you maybe you write a novel or something like that. I'm not saying we should go back to that. Um, We have, you know, just an incredible plethora of new voices in the industry, which is great. But the industry itself is not built Has not, has never addressed the lack of mentoring and structure and like in a healthy way, which Mm -hmm. I feel like should be there. Um, The Sopranos can't exist unless it's at the end, not the end of his David Chase's career, but at that point in his career. To your other point, um, it feels weird to say this about a show that was absolutely the first cable TV phenomenon. No disrespect to Arliss and Dream On, but like when Sopranos hit, Suddenly, even the people who bragged about not owning a TV were like, well, I guess I'll go to the uh, member of my book clubs group that has a television set. That's my father talks like that, but he had a TV anyway. um,
0: It was the exception people made.
1: Yeah. And it, and it became a Sunday night phenomenon that we, that you and I still pine for when we talk about how we enjoy processing TV sex in the city was, you know, was, was part of that as well. And maybe the early seasons of Caribbean enthusiasm, building HBO into the juggernaut, but so it seems weird to say this about a show that was an absolute huge genre rattling phenomenon. But in a way, it was also a quiet phenomenon because what was it competing with? And so it didn't feel any pressure. David Chase didn't feel any pressure to like bring in a guest star or cater to the new audience in any way. It still felt siloed off because HBO was still an expensive subscription. And, you know, it was unclear who was watching it or what it meant. And he clearly just was given the freedom by Chris Albrecht and the rest of the people at HBO to do his own thing in a way that I think would just be, it's just not comparable today. I mean, today it's the film business. You need log lines and stars and you need noisiness and stickiness. And these are the words you talk about just to get something off the ground.
0: Yeah, I I guess the reason why I was asking is I was racking my brain trying to remember the last time you and I really covered the fourth season of a show. You know, Yes, um, it's been a
1: long time. Part of it is
0: divergent taste. Part of it is... Most shows don't make it to four seasons. You know, I think that Saul is probably the last show that we've really discussed in depth that is in its post third season. And I'm sure that, you know, we're lucky enough to keep doing this podcast. And if they're lucky enough to keep making the show, we'll keep talking about succession for as long as they make it. But yeah, Saul is the most recent thing where I was like, and that's also an example of a show that I feel like, to me at least, has gotten better over the course of its run for you is there an internal uh an like an internal metric for you of like Sopranos era like sopranos eras like is there a good part of sopranos uh like less good part of sopranos and then a peak sopranos like is it do you look at the run like that
1: no because it was experienced differently like that's a great question that we should put to Justin or people who have rewatched it you know because again when you were just living for it and looking forward to the new season without podcasts, without like recap culture, which I guess had emerged by the end of the show's run. It it was just a different era where I felt and the show deserved it, but I think the feeling was more gratitude that we had it. You know, I still remember feeling very confused by the last season of the wire being like, wait, but this is the greatest thing of all time. Is this maybe not as good? No, I'm sure I'm wrong. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't looking at things. This is not a fair comment, but like, I, I, I to, to suggest that people just watch things to tear them down. But the primacy of that question, you know, is that are we sure this is still good? Which is, you know, I believe um, that question is like attached, like an, a face sucker from Aliens to the <laughs> season two of Ted Lasso currently. But mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't really about that. My that said, my experience also wasn't linear. I didn't start watching the Sopranos in 1999 and 2000. I was not orienting my week around television. Um, mostly orienting it around what did we say last week we were embracing each other in bars yeah you smelled like camels (laughs) like that that was mostly what i was doing but i think i caught up with a show on dvds um and then was a full-time watcher of it like the third or fourth season or whatever um and so in my mind though this is probably a controversial take i just i adored the last season I, mm-hmm. I, I maybe it's because it's recency bias. I just remember feeling. Did so, you write about the
0: last season? I can't. When when, when was the last? No, season? No,
1: that was two thousand seven. Oh I didn't start writing about. I think the first thing I ever wrote about a TV show was probably two thousand nine for Vulture. Mm-hmm. So no, I, not at all. It was just purely like, oh my god, this is just epic storytelling and thrilling and engaging because of you know the long road and years it took to get here.
0: I'm curious about. And one of the reasons why I'm directing all these questions to you is because I don't really have it's one of like my great cultural blind spots. I've seen I think most of the Sopranos, a lot right. of it like not necessarily in order. I, I just it's just one of those weird shows that I do not have a great relationship to. I have literally will not weigh in on like it's it's worth because I don't feel like I've done the proper amount of study on it and it's just it's just one of those things like I think everybody has a couple of blind spots maybe I shouldn't do a TV podcast if I'm going to talk and talk authoritatively about it it's like one of those shows where I was like yeah man it's it seems it's great like I've had very emotional experiences watching it but it was never something that I sat down and watched from front to back and I often had like I think in that era when it was on and especially when it was ending I don't think I was really like paying attention to TV. So I guess my question is, can you speak authoritatively uh, about the canon of television? Mm -hmm. If you aren't basically always aware of what all these shows do. And I guess the reason why I'm asking is like, I was talking to Sean the other day, fantasy. And he was just like, I think it's the best show ever made. You know, I think, I think that it's pretty obviously the best show ever made. And I didn't argue with him because I, I don't think I've, did the work necessary to have a counter argument because I haven't watched The Sopranos from front to back and like thought about it in that way. But I, I do think that this will we will only have more and more conversations about what's the what's the rushmore of television, what are the canonical shows. That canon's going to change drastically in the next yes. 10 years, I think. Do you think about that? And do you think about where the Sopranos stands among the greatest shows of all time?
1: I do. And I and I waver at times whether it's the greatest or not. I do think it's worth noting one of the things that the New York Times article posited was that The Sopranos is resonating so much with the younger generation because of its commentary on the decline of America. I would argue that the three essential shows of that era of television, the three Rushmore shows, three of the four, um, the fourth could be a wild card, I guess, were about that topic. I mean, The Sopranos, The Wire, and Breaking Bad are all in very different ways about the end of the American century and about a certain version of American um, male existence. Mm-hmm. And I think that all three told their stories using different influences and different lenses, you know, and I think that that alone makes them all viable contenders for that conversation. Um, what the Sopranos was drawing from both in terms of its filmmaking bona fides and the, history of the mafia movie and mob stories in America, plus just deeply novelistic storytelling um, with allusions and suggestions. You know, um, that is one thing. Uh, What Breaking Bad did by putting it in the language of, you know, hyperkinetic genre storytelling, action movie stuff, honestly, some of the time is totally different, um, but no less worthy or admirable, you know? So... For me, those three are on the pantheon, are, are the pantheon, if not Mount Rushmore, because of it. You know, I think though what, I think the things that become apparent though, and maybe this is always like the agony of influence that the things that are so important about the Sopranos, you see, can see the DNA in in other shows. You know, but I I, I think the things that are so important when I think about it are less about the storytelling or the mob stuff. It's it's pine barrens and someone just disappears it's the it's the performances in white caps when they're fighting which is like i've never seen acting like that on television and maybe on the screen ever you know i think it's it's the relationship that the fraught relationship between tormented creator and obsessed fans that played out mm-hmm. all of these things have been people are people have been reaching for those particular rings in different ways on other shows for years to come i i do think you can't have the conversation though i mean i i i I don't feel prepared to fully like list superlatives or or, no, or, or no. chisel into the mountain but I think that
0: I think I was more looking to have like a meta conversation about Yeah. what I think is probably as we're 20 years from Sopranos as we as and I think a lot of this is honestly I do chalk some of this up to um the industry that has sprung up around revisiting shows which wasn't yes. there before. I don't Correct. think that we were If I had said in 2011 when Grantland started that what I would really like to do is rewatch and then write about something. I think that I'm sure there were things like on AV club. Like i I know that there were places doing that. That wouldn't have occurred to me though, because I felt like we were in this mo- moment of like, we're just, you know, we're, we're lurching forward with the medium. Like let's talk about all the shows that are coming on that are kind of changing the way we look at TV. And now I think that we've entered this weird zone where So many shows go unwatched. So many, so many shows kind of don't reach their their audience. But I don't know that I have a compelling argument that somebody should watch season two of Patriot, with no disrespect to Patriot, which is a very good show. Without watching The Sopranos, you know what I mean? Like, or or bring it back.
1: We've said this before in different ways, but it's. I think it bears repeating how totally unprecedented this is. Part of... Let's use a sports analogy because we podcast for a sports and culture website and company. Um, part of being a sports fan, right, is you are a fan of the shirts. So we're, fa- we're Phillies fans or whatever. And your different players pass through the clubhouse and have legacies to live up to. And you have different relationships to the teams. And on and on and on it goes. Imagine a world where you're a baseball fan, but starting in 2009... All the old players don't age anymore, and they're still in the clubhouse. Yeah,
0: like imagine basically like all the arguments that happen in basketball are a lot of them are generational. A lot of them are yes. like, could Jordan play now? Could Could KD play in Jordan's era? You're the way TV works now is like, what if Jordan was also playing? Because you could watch
1: yes, The Sopranos, that choice.
0: Frozen in Amber, now up next to True Detective.
1: Now, am I? Sp- did I create this analogy because I dearly wish Jimmy Rollins and Ryan Howard were still playing for the Phillies? Yes. But also it, it, it makes it very complicated and confusing and very hard to form attachments to, or even properly rate new additions. Um, you have the choice. Every new show that comes out is competing with every new show that's out, which is the way it always has been, but also every show in history, plus all the other things we use our screens for all the time. Mm -hmm. It is A completely different and insane landscape that says some things older things begin to dim in comparison which is probably healthy and right i uh last night checked out the wonder years reboot on abc but then also because it was also available on hulu watched the original wonder years pilot and it was really amazing to watch it because that was a hugely important episode of television when i was 11 and anyone who was alive then Maybe at that age or older remembers it. It was like a seismic moment in TV. People went crazy for that show, and it was really interesting to watch it for two reasons. One, the reasons why it worked were still totally apparent. Performances were great. Character decision making was great. Um, where it focused the story and how it moved us through the world—it's just really expertly done. So there's no, it, it's no surprise it was a huge hit. But it a million percent was like watching old white dudes with shorts up to their crotch lines two hand (laughs) heaving basketballs into peach baskets you know what i mean like it just did not seem like the same game anymore yeah and the sopranos absolutely does and in fact it almost looks better the way movies from the 70s still kind of dazzle you in ways that studio movies from the 2020s don't just because it was a different era with a different type of point of view and perspective and storytelling freedom you know they're just what are the shows that are capable of doing what the Sopranos did or what or what The Wire did over multiple seasons? Um where where are those shows? We love a lot of things we've seen this year, just moved by them, you know, thrilled by them. Yeah. But
0: I, I'm I'm very happy with the emerging top ten list. It's like a it's a very good year, you know, like and Me too. It's yeah. a very good year that's come out despite that these shows have have emerged despite like probably an unprecedented Circumstances in terms of like producing television and what you're able to do and how you're able to do it and the the way you have to kind of stitch things together and and I think it's that it, people have done an extraordinary job making TV, but it it is interesting to go back and 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 just to sort of think about the way in which the shows were experienced back then. So that that's basically why I wanted to talk to you about this. Any other Sopranos notes? Are you? Or, oh, I, I remember what I wanted to talk to you about. So, many cents of Newark is coming out this weekend. Yeah. And uh, we've talked about this. Obviously, not the way that David Chase wanted it to be released. No, I he, feel terrible about this. He was basically like, I will go back to this world because it will be a, a film. It will be a film not only in its sort of standalone, discreet nature, but it will be a film in that it is going to be a theatrical experience, something that's really important to him. And it's not going to be the case because HBO releases its films um day and date on hbo max so many saints of newark will sit right next to pine barons and white caps in people's queue um which is probably not what he wanted
1: i think that both of us are kind of not that david chase and i are similar in any way but i on some level feel that we are both surprised at the reception and the marketing and everything around it like in retrospect of course this is soprano's product it is fresh Sopranos product for the first time in 14 years so when the posters on the bus stop near my house are like who made Tony Soprano in letters three times the size of the title of the film Mm -hmm. or that we're having this conversation or that The Ringer's publishing an exhaustive list or whatever of course what's I think I think in terms of David Chase, for as angry as he is about the lack of theatrical experience, I have to think that even his curmudgeonly exterior has been breached to a degree by just the sheer outpouring of adoration that he's getting from this new generation and continued generation of Sopranos fans, which I feel like he didn't allow himself to experience, didn't experience because the culture was different, or the fact that like he dropped that finale, then went on vacation, and everyone was mad for six months. Sure. So all of it feels a little bit surprising.
0: Do you think you'll go see it in a theater? <laughs>
1: I, I don't even want to answer because I want to do this for him. You guys should listen to this interview with Marin uh, or can we, well, I don't even know if they have our archives. He was on our podcast or, or my podcast, which has really always been our podcast back in the Grantland days, but it matters so much to him, you know, that this is a movie and it crushes me to say, I I don't know if I will. I yeah. just don't, I'm just not, I'm still not wired that way, even though, you know, numbers are good and I feel relatively safe and confident in our life here in California. I watch The Sopranos on TV and it's going to be there and I have a decent TV. I feel like that's how it's going to happen. And I'm sorry to say it.
0: I'm working my, my confidence up and maybe my antibodies because I, I went to Bond. I went to a screening of Bond.
1: Big rebound for you and Team J&J recently. <laughs> what a roller coaster you guys have been on. So respect to you, sir.
0: <laughs> you want tell people are you referring to well
1: you're 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 you're
0: johnson and johnson shot Yeah, like you, know? if you get another one you're fu- you're set for life basically yeah. right and I here i've sp-
1: been i've been just 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 dunking on fools I know. with my with my pfizer content and apparently i got the bad one <laughs> i mean what a turn of events you don't change horses
0: boy. midstream that's what i learned mid um,
1: bloodstream that's right. right Go on. anyway
0: i went to go see a screening of the bond movie on tuesday i'm going to talk about it with Sean and Amanda so I won't spoil anything about it obviously but I saw it on an IMAX screen Whoa. there were moments wow. where I was like I'm awful close to other people and there are also mm. moments where I completely forgot where I was and was completely lost in what I was watching which is exactly what movie theaters can do that your living room cannot You your living room no matter how good it is will not take you out of your own head you will not get lost in the experience no matter how good a tv show is because you're simply just too distracted by your own surroundings and sometimes i actually prefer watching tv that embraces that you know like i i I miss kind of like everybody coming over to watch the girls game of thrones veep block you know and like that kind of like more communal atmosphere and creating something different than tv watching but this like try to create the movie theater in your home thing still is never going to be what watching no time to die on IMAX is even regardless of how good that movie is. Um, it's true. That being said, uh, you know, it's a batting average game and it's like, how many times to the plate do you want to go Or you're indoors with a ton of people while it's still kind of like a little dicey and it's, it's weird. It's like, I, I, I don't know where my head is at with it. I'm definitely going to see Dune in theater. Uh, I would like to do this for David chase, but, um, To me, it's not like the culmination of a dream to see this movie. So I'm not sure if I will.
1: No. And it's also, you know, I think there is a cascading series of choices, too. It's not, you know, for in in my household, like to go out to the movies or make Uh, a night of it is a babysitter conversation. Sure. And so that's bringing another person into your house. And, you know, I my. Kids have not really had babysitters for a long time, which makes them resistant to it, much like your uh, body is resistant to the Delta variant. (laughs) Thanks to your one shot of Johnson and Johnson, no free ads, but goddamn, keep my friend alive. And, um, you know, it it, it's tough and it's tough for every one of these well-intentioned movies that is the next one up into the breach to be like, will you do it for me? Yeah. No, will you do yeah. it? It, it? You know, you just can't
0: give people the choice. I mean, like I just don't I just think that like for for a lot of people it's just like the convenience and comfort and security of just being like I can just jam Dune as loud as it goes and see if I can recreate it. It's not going to be the same.
1: Dune's going to get me to a theater, I think. Yeah. I just I, I like I had such a great like I don't know if the if the Blade Runner movie was good, but I loved watching it. Yeah,
0: it's just
1: It, it was a great experience. I don't I mean, it's interesting. We never have addressed it. Have you been to it. a movie yet? No, and we haven't addressed it. And no one's asked that I've seen. But like, we didn't cover Shang Chi because I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I apologize because I want to see it. I like Marvel movies. This is fun for me to go see those movies. But it's not streaming, and so I'm not ready to go see it. So I haven't seen it yet. Sorry that, for people who wanted my hot Aquafina takes.
0: You're just so committed uh, to TV. That's your thing.
1: <laughs> that's I just love watching stuff on on small screens. You no, I have been to a theater, and then. It, here, here's where we're at with it. I think longtime listeners know that my family, without me, has been to the theater. Yeah. And then last Friday, when someone let my younger daughter know that it would be possible to watch Paw Patrol in her home, I all I can say is, uh, Chris, you're now talking to a proud Paramount Plus subscriber. <laughs> uh, I hadn't even <laughs> taken off my shoes when I signed up for the service oh, on my, my phone. God. Well, my children were staring at the TV for like a green light to appear for the movie to be available to them. What a world! So that's that's what got all this talk about like the Taylor shared and expanded universe, blah blah blah. All the episodes of Paw Patrol are on Paramount Plus, so there goes my money. I mean, it's not that complicated, You're and it's just cheaper. A... That show is. Unlike Jeremy Renner, that show is just made in a factory, probably worked at by actual dogs in Canada. <laughs> like it is not an expensive show. I can assure you that is not an expensive show to produce. I mean,
0: obviously that dude got the job running paramount because he was like, what if we have dogs on as detectives?
1: <laughs> De- Chris, that is a far superior show to Dog what Paw Patrol detectives? actually is. I would I w- so I what wish. are they on
0: patrol? What are they patrolling
1: then? Chris, Paw Patrol is about A a parentless 12 year old with uh, anime hair who has five or six talking puppies and a limitless budget to live in a sort of, you know, Foucauldian panopticon in the middle of a small town where if anything goes wrong, they call not the actual like civic institutions that are their job to protect. They call this boy. The boy then goes through this whole rigmarole with his puppies who then have like giant trucks and cars. So he's doing they dr- extra ju-
0: judicial law enforcement.
1: Yes. This dude is the, he's, 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 he's the punisher. <laughs> no, I feel like his parents were the dudes who like went off grid in Oregon. You know what I mean? But then he just got into puppies. So like, there's one puppy who is a cop. There's one puppy who is a fireman. There's a puppy who is a, uh, a construction worker. And Then there's like a puppy who has a recycling truck and one who likes to surf. And then there's the girl who has a helicopter. And I say that dismissively because the show is dismissive. And then they help people and they all laugh. And it's so, so confusing. The villain of the show is a mayor. Oh. Just a bad mayor who likes cats, which is basically Bill de Blasio, as far as I know. (laughs) And I don't know if he deserves this level of... uh, Okay, sorry. You, you, You didn't mean to open that.
0: No, but I'm, I, I can't wait to fire up Paramount Plus later to yes, check yes, it out. yes, you can. Yes, um, you can. Let's take a quick break and then we'll talk about Squid Game. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile for more
1: details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm.
0: Andy, we're back. Uh, so we wanted to talk about a couple more episodes of Squid Game, but Joe Dalian for Vulture just wrote a piece that was just about kind of confirming the anecdotal evidence, I suppose, that we were sort of talking about on Monday's show, which is like this show's really big. Squid Game yeah. is a huge hit, and it it definitely seems to have popped uh, over the last couple of of days or weeks or whatever. I know, you know, the, and I think it's probably probably like. Th- gonna you know like become even bigger I, I, I every episode that i watch i'm like this is just going to be massive like every time i think like there's no way yep. they can top what happened in the last episode as i I made a joke about this earlier but the strobe light fight is kind of one of the most extraordinary things i've seen in a really it long time So
1: crazy and i just
0: kept being like this is gonna end soon right like i just kept getting crazier and crazier um do you i mean were there any takeaways you had from joe's story
1: I think what was really good about the story, which, you know, there, there is, it's still Netflix. So there's, you're still ultimately taking their word for it. But I think that one of the things that, that Joe has done in his buffering column is sort of give credence to some of these ag- information aggregators that can indicate what's search, what's being searched and what's being talked about, which gives you a, apparently a fairly decent read on what's actually popular or not. And like, just chatter about squid game is like what was it 79 times higher than any other new show sure. and that it's breaking through faster than like like money heist is a big big hit for netflix yeah. but it's in its fifth season it North wasn't Coast an instant a big hit. show
0: but i think yeah
1: i i what i appreciated about it was that it focused on the fact that the real efficiency of netflix well locating the the team in Korea, greenlighting the show, making it happen, giving them the resources to do such a great job with it, that cannot be discounted. That is traditional TV making 101 and you love to see it. But the extra thing that Netflix does is that they have it ready to go within a week or two in 37 different countries with Mm -hmm. fully dubbed and subtitled editions.
0: We are watching the subtitled
1: edition, by the way. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. Everyone better be. That's about everything. Never, ever, ever watch the dub. Of anything, unless it's like a Studio Ghibli movie or, or something. Or a
0: Sergio Leone movie. Because <laughs> you don't really have okay. a choice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, fair. Um, so, I thought that was remarkable. I, I also just think this might be a broken record from what we talked about before. I can't believe how good it is. Now, I know there may be people who have finished the series who are already starting to see fault lines or, you know, maybe have different critiques. We have not finished the series. I think we're at episode five. Both the beginning of, us. of episode five. Because episode four ends with a cliffhanger. I was like, nope. Nope, 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 nope. nope, (laughs) nope. We're going to push through. I can't believe how good it is. Not just in terms of the structure and the way that they keep ratcheting up the stakes, as you're saying, but like, there are these fundamental storytelling decisions that are so smart. And the big one for me that I did not see coming was that they all go home in episode two. It's so simple, right? But it runs absolutely counter to what you expect because you watch the first episode and you're like, what a what a masterpiece of efficiency it introduced us to some of these characters or at least to our main lead it got him into this extreme circumstance and now what's going to happen but no they were like we need more time to humanize the show which we understand is essential to a program like this so we're going to take a step back and when they all choose to go back it's exponentially raised the stakes of everything our investment in it what it means for these characters um the humanity of it totally. And and the thing that I couldn't get over, and I was texting you this yesterday, was I was trying to think of a show that so skillfully deployed its emotional storytelling in concert with its what the fuck thriller plot. Yeah. adrenaline plot. Yeah. Um and because I look, when I say the show is amazing, I'm not saying it's Mad Men Season Five. It's just not the same kind of show, but It's a hell of a good time. It's incredibly well-made. And the thing that I finally realized I was thinking of was Lost. The new Lost isn't La Brea, which sounds like we probably should give it a watch just for the LOLs. The new Lost was always going to be something that evolved what it meant for it to be stakesy and plotty in a different direction for this internet era. But more than anything, it would do that in balance with Just in a like like a like a like a draftsman, like a the sketch artist by the side of the, you know, the Louvre who's just like, let me draw your picture in six strokes with this pen, like to be able to tell someone's emotional story and make you care about them with such economy. That's what they're doing here. I care about these people so much now. Uh and then they play tug of war to the death. I mean, man. It's interesting that you bring up Lost because I was thinking
0: about how that second episode of Squid Game could have been executed in a different way, which would have been, they never leave the arena or the warehouse or the island or wherever you want to say, but their stories are told in flashbacks as a B-plot of the episode, so that you would just basically get um, the North Korean pickpocket story as the 15-minute subplot of whatever is happening in that episode. Mm -hmm. But I'm so glad that they didn't do it. The fact that Essentially, in the second episode, everybody elects to go home and then voluntarily comes back because they realize the second episode's called Hell. And it turns out Hell is not a game where all of your other contestants are being mercilessly machine gunned by a giant doll uh, or by the wall behind a giant doll. It's actually just living in <laughs> modern yeah, don't life. Don't
1: besmirch the doll. Yeah. The doll just, just was... Pointing things out. It was just the playing red light, green you. light.
0: But it's basically like hell is living in a, in in the world. And this game is actually maybe a more pure way of existing in some ways.
1: The only downside to the, I agree. Also, the flashback thing has been done. That is lost. And so mm-hmm. I love the forward momentum of it. The, the only criticism is that that opens you up to Seoul, one of the great urban centers on planet Earth, is apparently Tiny Town where only five people exist to pickpocket each other or encounter at a convenience store, but happy to pay that price. Yeah. Happy to pay that price in order to get, to get what we get, you know, and it, it, it's, what I just admire about the show so much is that it's not complicated. Like well, the games that's the themselves, thing. Like they're mystery, basic
0: mystery box shows don't need to be complicated. And I think that we have probably Abrams ourselves out of that where it's like, no, actually you need to meet your dad from another timeline and do three side quests to four different planets to do this, yep. this, this, and this, and then go get this piece of paper from somebody and then come back and get the lightsaber and all this other stuff. That's not actually what makes shows or stories mysterious. What's mysterious is the character's active participation in engaging in a situation that they don't know the outcome of or that they don't know the parameters of. And that's what was so amazing about Lost, too, is that those people found themselves in a supernatural, extraordinary circumstance And for as many questions as they were facing and for as many little like, is this a biblical reference? And is this this? And is this an Easter egg or whatever? Like they've kind of faced those questions in a very clean way. I'm sure there were moments where it wasn't so clean. That's what Squid Game is doing. I mean, like every time you're like, oh, and then there's also this happening and oh, and this person has this reason for being here. And maybe this person has this reason for betraying that person. Like all that stuff just feels very much... It, it it feels knitted together in a really good way.
1: Here's the thing that stood out to me about my watching experience the last two nights. I was so excited to turn it on last night. I was so excited to have another episode of, of Squid Game to watch. I was looking forward to it in such a pure way that didn't come with any of the you know, this might be a challenge to watch this episode, but it'll be worth it. Or I'm not, you know, I'm still on the fence about the show, or I'm finishing it out of a sense of completism. Um, None of that. And again, it was very, it just felt very basic. The, when it was revealed that they're playing tug of war, I knew because I've watched television before that the team that features five out of our six or five out of our seven point of view characters was not going to die. Mm -hmm. That meant they were going to win everybody involved their battle. Everyone involved with the show on every side of the camera or screen knows that. But what you lean forward on the couch for is to find out, well, how are they going to do it? How are they going to beat this system, beat this game? And it was cute and clever and came from character and was incredibly well executed and directed. I, I have to
0: admit, the show's relationship to red shirts is really good, though, like because uh, the extremity of the situations that they find themselves in, I actually didn't go into tug of war thinking they won't die. I didn't necessarily think they were all going to die, but I wouldn't be surprised if the old right. man went flying off the tower. OK, you know? that's true. That's true. And because so, the,
1: the other looming thing that is almost delicious in its inevitability is that pretty soon and Thank God, Kaya has her camera off because she's watched more episodes than we have. One member of our beautiful team is going to get off one way or another. Like that's going to start to happen sooner rather or, than ter- later. Or I they're would all going to have
0: to turn on each other because they're going to run out of players.
1: Exactly. That, so that's where we're headed. We all know it, but that's part of that. That's part of the creative process. And you know, we talked about this in a different context with White Lotus. That when you have a confident creator firing on all the right cylinders, knowing what the audience knows. And enjoying that and playing with it, but not taking advantage of it, is a real, real superpower.
0: I just don't get surprised that often anymore. And when I know this came out of nowhere, but even within the show itself, my favorite part of each episode is when all the players are kind of commiserating before a game starts, before they're led into the game room. Yeah, and they're like, "What do you think it's going to be?" You know, do you think it's going to be elastics? Do you think it's it'll so be exciting? This? And you're just like. When they open up that room for the honeycomb challenge in uh, Man with the Umbrella, I, I was just like, what the fuck is going to happen to these people in this giant oversized jungle gym set? <laughs> you
1: know? Then you and I both just chuckled with recognition because on the streets of Philadelphia, we spent untold hours carving out shapes from honeycomb cookies. That's right. With, with <laughs> That's right. needles. I don't like, think that any is... of my
0: childhood games would come in useful here.
1: are they the ones that you can't mention on a a family broadcast or just
0: no I don't think so I think a lot of the names for those games have since fallen out of favor oh oh yeah it was
1: Philadelphia in the 80s I get it all right
0: well we can wrap it up there thanks to Kyle McMullen for producing us as always I think Monday we'll probably try and I don't know if we'll wrap up Squid Game but maybe we'll hit it again and then you know we're kind of getting ready for succession Andy and I will do a mailbag episode next Thursday so we'll send out a prompt for questions on that In the meantime, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody watches Many Saints of Newark in whatever way they seem fit. Maybe we'll talk about that on Monday. And yeah. yeah. All right. Good to see you.
1: Great Squid Game, Karanskis.